Amen. Well, if you've been tracking with us over the last several weeks, you know that we're in the middle of a series that we've been calling Real Faith. Real Faith. And this series seems to be very popular on our website and on uh, iTunes. And I've gotten some uh, feedback from many of you that this has been a very uh, significant series for you. As we've been highlighting what it means to be a person, to be people of a real faith. And as you know, if you've been tracking along with us, we've been using as a springboard for this series uh, a famous quote by one of my heroes, Dr. Martin Luther King, and that quote goes as follows. The ultimate measure of a man or woman is not where he or she stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he or she stands at times of challenge and controversy. In other words, what King is saying is that we really don't know who you really are, what you're really made of when things are going well. Rather, we know who you really are, what you're truly made of, when trouble happens or when controversy or challenge darkens your path. And I think the same is true as faith, which is why I use this quote every week in this series, because I think the same is true with faith. We really don't know how how deep and abiding our faith is until we're challenged, until we face issues, until we face difficulties in life. And basically what we've been doing as we've been working through this series is looking at some of the heroes of the faith Uh, particularly those who dealt with challenges, who dealt with obstacles, who showed us and all the people who read the scriptures that they were true and genuine people of faith. The goal, of course, is to to, to fashion our lives after those heroes of the faith. We found a perfect definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, right from the scriptures. It says, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things that we cannot see. And a key word there is confidence, obviously. We have confidence that God is who he says he is. We have confidence that we can believe in God. We have confidence that the things he says for us to do and also the things that he tells us not to do are not just in this effort for God to just show us he's the boss, but rather God has a plan. He has a reason for saying do that. He has a reason for saying don't do that. And we have a confident hope that God is who he says he is and he will do all that he says he, he will do. And that confident hope is expressed by very little else other than obedience. Obedience shows us exactly what we believe in. What we actually do, what we actually live out shows us about our real faith. And we've been looking at heroes of the faith, both Old and New Testament. We've talked about the distinguishing marks of real faith. We've talked about sacrifice. We've talked about taking a stand. We've talked about dealing with temptation. We've talked about being willing. And last week, we looked at the story of David, and we talked about um, having courage and how faith requires courage. Well, we're going to continue this morning by continuing to look at David, one of the heroes of the faith. And we're going to look at a less flattering aspect of David's life, our hero David. We know that the scripture tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. I mean, that's, that's high praise. That's high praise. I, I wish that that would be said of me when the Lord looks down on me. So we know that David's a man after God's own heart, but that doesn't seem to make David exempt from the human condition, from the human condition. And what is the human condition, friends? Human condition is our sinfulness. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how holy you are. Doesn't matter how righteous you are. If you're a human, if you're born into this sinful, broken, selfish world, you're going to have to deal at some point, and perhaps if you're anything like me, regularly with the problem of sin. And I'm not talking about you diagnosing somebody else's sin. Are you dealing with somebody else's sin? We seem to be called to deal with other people's sin. I'm talking about dealing with your own stuff your own issues, the less flattering things about yourself. 
And if David can be a man after God's own heart, David was an absolute hero, a giant of the faith. This gives me hope. Because when I wrestle with my own sin, sometimes I feel like, man, I'm the only one dealing with this. Man, God, you must be angry with me. But when I look at the scriptures, I see people dealing with sin well, and I see people dealing with sin poorly. And today we look at uh, David because I feel like he's a man who deals with his sin well. And I just want to uh, define sin for us so we all have the same working de- definition. Sin is an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. That's a widely understood uh, uh, definition for sin. But sin in the, the original language simply means to miss the mark. And you, when, you, when you think about archery, you think about a bullseye, right? Sin simply means to miss the mark. In other words, what you should be hitting dead on when we sin, when we transgress against God's law, when we do things counter to what he says to do, we simply miss the mark. And that's what our working definition will be today for uh, sin. And I've just titled this message simply, Dealing with Our Sin. Dealing with sin as a person of faith. Dealing with sin as people of faith. Because it doesn't matter how much you sacrifice. It doesn't matter how much you stand. It doesn't matter how much you face temptation. It doesn't matter how willing you are. It doesn't matter how courageous you are. We have to deal and deal well with our sin if we want to be people of real, authentic faith. So today we look at the scriptures. 2 Samuel chapter 11. You can turn there in your Bibles. Please bring your Bibles to church, by the way. If you don't have Bibles, there are Bibles on the edges of each row. Uh, Feel free to take one of those Bibles if you don't have one at home. And if you've been taking a lot of them, just quietly bring those back to us. We're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. Before I do that, let me just pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your greatness. I thank you for your loving kindness, Lord, which is better than life itself. Lord, I thank you that you, the great physician, I thank you that you don't ignore the things that will trip us up. You don't just tell us nice things. You don't just give us flowery messages. Rather, Lord, you always cause us to deal with the things that will disqualify us from our kingdom inheritance. And today we look at the problem of sin. So, Lord, would you show us through your word, show us through your truth how to deal with sin as people of faith. And, Lord, we know that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, Lord, but we want to we look squarely at this issue and deal with it according to your truth and according to your word. Lord, would you put power on these words that you've given me to speak? Uh, would you get me out of the way this morning and let your truth and love shine through? I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're looking at 2 Samuel, chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 1. Give you a minute to turn there. The, the, the words also will be projected on the screen. This is talking about King David. Verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Reba. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of his bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, excuse me, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent a messenger to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent a message to David saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent a word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent uh, him to David. 
When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then Uriah to, I'm sorry, then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you will return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk, but even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife again. He slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Now, this is an interesting story. And many of you have read this story before. And this just details what we're talking about today, and that's David's sin. We're talking about David's sin. And the interesting thing about this is we see where David's sin starts. The first verse of this chapter says it all begins when David wasn't where he was supposed to be. How many of you know the most trouble you've gotten yourself into is when you were someplace that you weren't supposed to be? Now, that's not the focal point of this talk, but I think it's important to know that we ought to just stay where we're supposed to be. It says it's spring, and most of the armies went to war at spring. They didn't go to war in winter for obvious reasons. So David is a fantastic man of war, a great strategist. He's, he's won victories with his army many, many times, and he should have had his butt on the battlefield. But where is he at? He's lounging in the palace. He's taking naps, right? And since he's not where he's supposed to be, he gets himself into trouble. Gets up from his nap, goes out to the rooftop, and sees this woman of unusual beauty, the scripture says, taking a bath. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't divert his eyes. He doesn't say, man, I shouldn't be looking at that. What does he do? He goes, say, hey, listen, give me some info on this lady. Who is this beautiful woman? And he finds out that she's a married woman. And she's married to one of the, one of the soldiers, a guy that's away at war. What does he do? He says, listen, well, bring her here. I'm the king. I want this woman. So he sleeps with her. And not only does he sleep with her, he impregnates this woman. And um, upon finding that he's pregnant, she, she calls for Uriah. said, listen, come in here. Listen, try to get the guy drunk so he can go and sleep with his wife and think that this is his baby. So I mean, we see not only this evil sin that David has committed, but we see this devious multi-layered, multi-faceted cover-up. And I don't have time to read the rest of what happens, but when David can't get this righteous man to go home and sleep with his wife while his fellow countrymen are at war, David has this guy put on the front lines of battle so that he would be sure to be killed. Takes a man's life. And all of the other things that he does, probably to orchestrate this, David sins on multiple, multiple fronts. And upon learning that Uriah has been killed, he has this sort of air of indifference about it. Well, this is God's man. This is a man after God's own heart. But as we read further in the story, as we see how the details unfold of this story, we still see when we look at David a picture of faith. A picture of faith. Now, some of you are confused. You said, preacher, I thought we were looking at the heroes of the faith. Are we looking at people who are of exemplary character, people who do things right, people who are worthy of being praised and exalted? Well, we are, because the scriptures tell us that all have sinned 
and fall short of God's glorious standard. In other words, no matter who you are, we all deal with sin. You need only to just look in your recent past and, and discover that you yourself have dealt with sin. So before we jump on the pile here on David, let's, let's look at ourselves. Let's understand the reality that we all deal with sin. And frankly, that's just a fact of life. That's just a fact of being a human. The real rubber meets the road when we consider how we deal with our sinfulness. We're not focusing on falling down. We always fall down. We will always fall down. And I think we should do everything in our power to avoid falling down. The scriptures tell us to avoid sin as much as we possibly can. So we know that that's that's a reality of being a person of faith. But we want to look at what it means to get up when you fall. How a person of faith deals with their sin. And it's true today that we can't deal with our sin unless we're made aware of our sin. If you read the second half of the chapter that I just read, you see that David has this sort of indifference as he deals with this sin. He deals with Uriah's death. He gets the news that Uriah has been killed. And it seems like he's kind of oblivious to all the stuff that he's created, all the pain that he's created, all the stuff. So God does what he's very good at doing, and that is God makes us aware of our sin. God makes us aware of our sin. If we just flip to the very next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, God shows us how he's so faithful and he's so good at making us aware of our sin. 2 Samuel chapter 12, I'll start at verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Verse 5, David was furious. That's righteous anger we were talking about last week. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan the prophet said to David, you are that man. The Lord God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if, you had not been, if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword. Missing a page here. From then on, your family will live by the sword. I'll read along here. Uh, Because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. So God sends this message to to David. He says, listen, bro, you've messed up. You've messed up. You've done a terrible thing. And when I look back on my own life and I look at my own sins, the small ones and the great ones, those that have cost me a lot and cost the people around me a lot, God has always been faithful at revealing to me where I've I've gone wrong, showing me what I've done, showing me where I've messed up. And he knows exactly how to say it to you. He knows exactly 
how to plate it. So the prophet Nathan comes to David, and David's swimming in this indifference. He's trying to figure out how to finagle this thing, and God knows exactly how to plate this and how to make David aware of this. Prophet Nathan comes and tells him a story, and David hears this story. He says, man, this, this made him angry. He said, anybody who does this, anybody who deals harshly this way with other people's stuff should be dealt with severely. And then Nathan looks the, prof, look, looks the king in his face and says, listen, you're that guy. Listen, you're that guy. You're the man. And in that moment, David is confronted with his sin. In that moment, David is confronted with his sin. So we know we all sin. We know we all fall short of God's glorious standard. And we know that God is faithful enough to put our sin before us and show us exactly what we've done. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Because we can choose to respond a number of different ways. We can blow it off. We can say, well, that's how you see it. That's not how I see it. But the real people of faith choose to deal with, to press in to their sin. And here we look at David's response. David's response to his sin. And therefore, we identify the distinguishing marks of a person of faith as they deal with their own sin. And the first thing I see as a way that David deals with his sin is through confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. If you want to extract this step from a person of faith really dealing with their sin, it doesn't really work that way. It doesn't really work that way. Dealing with our sin, particularly as people of faith, means confession and repentance. And when I say confession, I don't mean this, oh, I messed up a little bit. Oops, I made a boo-boo. Oops, I got to do better next time. I mean coming clean, being on record before God and before man. And some of you have tried to deal with your sin as a person of faith without taking this step. Or you maybe confessed it to somebody who, you know, it doesn't really matter that much. You confessed it to your buddy who's worse off than you are. Yeah, I messed up. But true confession means coming clean, saying, yes, I did that. And as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 13, the verse that follows, you know, the prophet Nathan talking to David, this is what David does. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And I'm here to tell you today that nothing happens in terms of your sin being washed away, until the guilt being removed, uh, until you being square with God again. Nothing happens as it relates to your sin and God until you can own what you've done, until you can own the messes that you've made. I'm not telling you something that I've just read about. I'm telling you something that I've actually lived myself. What a powerful moment. We often try to avoid this step. I've sinned against the Lord, David says. We can own it, or we can blame, excuse, justify, we can deflect, we can make light of it, but David chooses to own it. And I love Psalm chapter 51 because it's a, excuse me, it's a psalm that was written by David in the midst of all this, as he deals with his sin. It's a very popular psalm. 
And David goes, uh, David proceeds as follows. Psalm chapter 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion and haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, David says, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me now. Let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and take I'm sorry, excuse me, and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I will offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Now, some of you need to print this out and, and put it above your bed or print it out and put it on the refrigerator because this is a perfect example. This is a template, if you will, of what it means to repent before the Lord. And David opens this psalm by saying, listen, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And what is David saying? Listen, you call me red-handed. I did it. I can't deny any aspect of it. You're the God who sees everything. You know exactly what I've done. I have no defense other than to come clean and say, Lord, have mercy on me because I know what I deserve. And as David surveys the landscape of all the people he's harmed, Bathsheba, Uriah, and not to mention all the soldiers that were killed in his effort to make sure that Uriah was killed, David has sinned against all those people. But what does David focus on? He says, against you and only you, Lord, have I sinned. Against you and only you have I sinned. I'm here to tell you, friends, it's it's, it's absolutely necessary as we live out our purpose of loving other people to be aware of how we sin against other people and how we've wronged other people and to do your very best to make that right. But make no mistake, when we sin, we sin against the living God. For those of us who fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, which is the beginning of living a fruitful, successful life, those of us who fear the Lord understand that when we sin, when we transgress, we sin against the living God. And David understands. He says, I have sinned against you. And because I've sinned against you, Lord, in verse 8, he says, I don't have joy. I don't have joy. David's sin was evident because God will not allow you to have joy and peace in the midst of your sin. How many of you know that? I think about times where I've just been in sin. I've been in rebellion. I've been far away from God. And the Lord would not allow me to have a moment's rest. In, in, a, in, a, you know, in, a, in a perpetual sense. I would sort of do all these things. I would pray and I would just sort of try to get it square with me and God without going through the full and thorough method of dealing with my sin, and the Lord said, you will not have a moment's rest. And I've told this story before that every time I would open my devotional, the Lord would just assault my conscience 
with the truth of this word. Every message I listened to, whether it was a preacher that I didn't even care for, it would just read my mail. No joy, no peace, just disturbed within my spirit until the Lord had pressed me to deal with the thing that I'm supposed to deal with. And this is what David says, I don't have any joy. I don't have any peace. I can't rest. I can't be me without dealing with this sin. We're talking about confession and repentance. David goes on in verse 10 to say, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. And this is David's way of saying, listen, something within me is not right. Something within me, a man after your own heart, God's man, God's chosen vessel, king of Israel, something's not right in me to make me go after another man's wife. Something's not right in me to make me try to cover that up with blood and deceit and lies. David says, something is corrupt on the inside of me, and Lord, I need you to fix it. I need you to fix it. And that ought to speak to you today. Some of you, that ought to hit you right between the eyes. Because you're blaming your sin on something else. You're blaming it on external factors. Well, if these women would just cover up, you know, I'd be okay. Or if this would just happen, you know, I'd be okay. If they would straighten that out, if my wife would just be calm, or if my husband would just do this. David points out the problem. He says, there's something broken on the inside of me. He says, Lord, I need you to create in me a clean heart. Do some work on me on the inside. Create a right spirit within me. There's something corrupt. There's something broken. There's something missing on the inside of me. Until we can deal uh, with, with our sin in that way, realize that we are the problem, that we're broken, that we're faulty, we're sinful, that we're selfish. Not in a way to beat ourselves down, but in a way to look in the mirror and see the real us. David says, create in me a clean heart. And he wraps this up by detailing what God requires, and that is a broken spirit. Broken spirit. Now, as a, as a preacher, I'm in the broken people business. I'm in the sinful person business. But I see so many sinful people, and even I put myself in the same boat at certain times in my life. Well, I just wasn't, I was sinful, but I wasn't really aware of it. Or I had a measure of indifference. And I wasn't broken before the Lord. I wasn't broken before the Lord. And not being broken doesn't mean that you're literally not broken. It simply means that you don't know that you're broken. You don't know that there's something missing. You don't know that there's something corrupt. I'll tell you, if you don't, if you don't think you're sick, you won't go to the doctor. If you don't think you're wrong, you won't submit to wisdom. You don't think you need help, you won't raise your hand and say help. And the truth of it is that we're all sinful. We're all broken. We all have something wrong with us. But what David highlights is what we need to say is, Lord, I'm broken. Lord, I need fixing. Oh, Lord, I need help. Because help, salvation, forgiveness, restoration doesn't come unless we first say, you know what, I messed up. I messed up. And this is the essence of confession and repentance. This is the essence of confession and repentance. The scripture says, confess your sins one to another. So why? So you can feel better? 
so you can get about your day, so you can check it off your list? Absolutely not. So that you can be healed. Confess so that you can be healed. The implication is if you don't participate in confession, thorough confession, regular confession, get it off your chest, get it out before the Lord and others, confession, you simply won't be healed. And some of us, we're able-bodied, our blood pressure's in check, we eat right, but we are so sick and broken because our soul is not square with your creator. You pay all your bills, you're square with all your debtors, you have a good family relationship, but your relationship with the Lord is absolutely jacked up because you've sinned against him, you won't come clean about it, and you won't turn from that thing. Listen, we're all in the same boat here today. And I'm telling you how real people of faith deal with their sin. Talking about confession. We're talking about true repentance. And repentance simply means that you turn from the thing that you're dealing with. You turn from it. And I'm just not talking about you leave it alone for a while. Some people are under the misunderstanding that God wants you to cut back on sin. He doesn't want you to cut back on sin. He wants you to cut it out. I'm just going to, do, I'm just going to cut back on that. It's getting out of hand. God, no, God wants you to turn from it and to turn from it in your heart where it counts. Because if you're like me, you've turned some things physically. You say, oh, I'm not going to be. But before long, I was, I was back at it. Before long, you're back at it. The true men- repentance means that you turn from it in your heart. You turn from it in your heart because if you don't turn from it in your heart, you will be back. So true confession and repentance starts with being broken before the Lord. And this is what we see with David. So if you want to be a real person of faith, you want to master dealing with your sin, because it's inevitable. We got to be people who confess and people who repent. And we see David as an example of that. The other very important component of that, as we see in the life of David, this is one of the guys who makes, uh, this is what, one of the things that makes him a hero of the faith, is that David is willing to deal with the consequences. He's willing to deal with the fallout that comes as a result of his sin. That comes as a result of, the, of his bad decisions. And some of us have made mistakes and we're frustrated. We're mad with God and we're mad with others because we have to sleep in the bed that we've made. We're upset because we have to deal with the stuff that we've caused. If somebody told you that when you repent, God simply removes all of the consequences of the stuff that you've done. That's not in here. That's not in here at all. In fact, oftentimes, we have to deal with the choices that we've made. And I think one of, the thing, one of the distinguishing marks of a person of faith as they deal with their sin is they deal with the consequences and the fallout. And David does a good job of that. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan. The prophet Nathan comes to him and tells him about himself in the story. And David says, listen, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the ground, on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and to eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. 
David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. I was always struck when I read this passage of Scripture. I'm always struck by David's response. I'm always struck by this passage of Scripture because it shows us that David has to live out the consequences of his sin. He has to live out the consequences of his sin. And if you read further in 2 Samuel, you know that this is David's son dying isn't the only uh, consequence of his sin. David's life got really hard after he did this. His own sons turned on him and began to fight him for the throne. He's been betrayed. Doesn't have as much success on the battlefield. David's whole life is turned upside down. Yes, he's still God's man. Yes, God has forgiven him, but there are consequences that came to bear because of his sin. And I want to put this reality in front of you this morning because God does forgive us of our sin. He's faithful to forgive us, especially if we confess and believe. But we have to deal with the consequences of our own sin. And some of you are in that boat today. For some of you, this is, this is news to you. And for some of this, this clarifies your situation. And it clarifies the circumstance that you're dealing with. Some of us have misused our bodies. And we're dealing with the consequences. Maybe poor health. Maybe diseases. Some of us have misused friends. And we've misused relationships. And we're dealing the consequences that come to bear in our life. And we have broken relationships. I say all the time that when we rub our life against the grain of God's will and his plan for our life, we're going to pick up splinters. Imagine you're just rubbing your hand against the grain of some wood. You're going to pick up splinters. The same is true as it relates to God's will and his plan for our life. You rub your life against the grain of how God designs this thing to work, you are going to inevitably pick up splinters. And just because you're having to deal with the consequences and just because you're having to deal with the fallout of your own sin or your own actions doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Doesn't mean that he hasn't forgiven you. Doesn't mean that he doesn't welcome you into his family with open arms. It simply means that as a result of sin, we often have to deal with the fallout of those things. And some of you here today, you're discouraged. You're discouraged by that. But I want to encourage you today. I want to encourage you that God's not mad at you, especially if you've repented and you've turned from your sin. God's not mad at you. This is just one of the ways that true people of faith deal with their sin. So how do we put this all together? What's the big picture? We all have sinned, the scripture says, and fall short of God's glorious standard. Worship team, you can come up. We all have sinned. We all have sinned. We don't like to talk about sin. Some of you rolled your eyes when you saw the bulletin. Oh, we're talking about sin again. 
Listen, you come to the hospital. Listen, don't forget where you are. You come to the hospital. Okay? You go to the hospital and the doctor, I mean, you've got all sorts of growths and tumors and the doctor just gives you a lollipop. You're looking good. You say, wait a minute. No, you're in the hospital. You're in the hospital. And I'm going to talk about the thing that will destroy you. I'm going to talk about the thing that will threaten to, to rob you of your, your life, a full relationship with the Lord Jesus, and that is our sin. But take heart because we all sin. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. But if you're walking with the Lord, if you're in tune with his voice, he will always, always, say always, always make you aware of it. He'll always make you aware of it. And sometimes I don't want to hear it. Sometimes I don't want to hear it. But I'd rather hear it than just go along doing the things that I'm doing. And the way God talks to you and deals with you may vary from person to person. One of the profound ways he speaks is when you come here to service. This is why you don't want to miss. Because this is one of God's chosen ways to speak with you, to put a mirror in front of you and show you yourself. And I don't want to leave myself out. As I'm preparing this, God puts a you know, 360 degree mirror in front of me and causes me to look at myself, especially the unflattering parts of myself. But God will always make you aware. But our part kicks in when we deal with it the proper way. How will you respond? And to some of you, the question is, when will you respond? Because the Lord has been showing you, some of you, yourself for years and years, and saying, when are you going to deal with that? When are you going to deal with that? You, you, you think that's going to go away? You think that nagging sense of conviction is going is to go away? I'm here to tell you it won't. I'm here to tell you it won't. The question today is, will you deal with your sin? If we learn anything from David in this story, it's that confession and repentance is the absolute first step. Confession and repentance is the absolute first step. And I've been pr- plugging our, our mini groups a lot. For those of you who don't know what mini groups are, mini groups are sim- they're not like small group Bible studies. They're simply small groups of men and women that get together weekly or every couple of weeks for the express purpose of confessing and dealing with our sin. And some of you said, that sounds scary. I don't want to tell God my sin, much less somebody else. But confession is a way to be healed. It's a way to be made new. Heard a preacher say one time, is if you, you want to you wanna, you wanna keep dealing with your sin, you want to keep falling in the same way, just keep telling God how sorry you are. Just keep telling God how sorry you are. But he said, you want to be different, you want to be transformed, tell somebody. You want to be different. You want to be transformed. You want to root that thing out of your life in a godly and healthy way. You want to do that in the context of community. Tell somebody else. So there's an important part of confession that deals with telling somebody else, but the the main part of confession deals with coming clean before the Lord God and saying, listen, I did that. I screwed up. I did that. Confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. And the second step, the last step, of course, we talked about is dealing with the consequences of your own sin. Not begrudgingly, not in this perpetual sense of, you know, grumpiness. I've got to deal with this. God, won't you just take this away? I'm talking about saying, Lord, I made this bed, and I'm going to sleep in it. And if it's your will to take it away, if it's your will to remove these consequences so that they don't come to bear in my life, then I will walk in that. But, Lord, if this is the cup that I'm to bear, 
Is this the bed that I'm to sleep in as a result of my own actions, as a result of my own sinfulness? Then, Lord, give me the grace to walk that out with dignity and godliness. With dignity and godliness. So where are you at today? Where are you at? And some of you answered that question too quickly. You said, I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm good to my neighbors. I pay my taxes. I pay my tithes. I come to church. I come on time. I'm good. The reality is some of us have a, a, a broken definition of what sin is. Now, sin isn't just these dastardly things that we do under the cover of night or we do behind closed doors. Sin is simply having a different agenda for your life than God has for you. Valuing your way of doing things, your way of thinking, your way of life over that of the master. And some of you are caught red-handed as we define sin in that way. So I ask the question again, and I want you to think for a while, how are you doing with this? How have you dealt with your sin? And some of you are here today, you just have, you've had this burden on your conscience for years and years and years. And some of you are just at the beginning stages of having a cycle of sin or particularly besetting sin. And I'm just telling you today how the Lord wants you to deal with that. And as we worship today, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to just come and to just impress upon you the sense of urgency to deal with the sin in your life. A sense of urgency. So did you know, say, no, I'll deal with this tomorrow, I'll confess tomorrow, or I'll come clean with my wife about this tomorrow, I'll tell the pastor about this tomorrow, I'll deal with this sin tomorrow. The Lord says he wants you to deal with it today. He wants you to deal with it today. If you're going to be a person of real, authentic faith, you're going to have to deal with your sin, and you're going to have to deal with it God's way. My prayer for all of us is that we, we would do it God's way and that we would accept his way of doing things. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your truth. I thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us just wondering what the answer is. You don't leave us trying to figure this thing out on our own, but rather you give us all the tools we need. And Lord, it's so difficult because it's an unnatural way of dealing with our own sin. We, we naturally want to cover up. We naturally just want to move past it, but you say not so. You say deal with it. You say face it head on. You say, get right with me. And for those of us, Lord, who struggle with sin, and that's all of us, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us the significance, the importance of doing this right and doing it right now. And Lord, for those who are here that are just under the weight of guilt and shame and condemnation, Lord, I pray that you would remove that. I pray, Lord, that what they would experience is your holy conviction conviction that speaks to what's broken, a conviction that points to the answer to what's broken, and that is you. So Lord, move us to confession, move us to true and genuine repentance, and help us to gracefully and in a godly way deal with the fallout of our sin and rebellion. And Lord, as we worship you today with song, would you just minister to us? Would you bring healing and wholeness as we do things your way? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.